had someone to love me, someone to call me their own. Oh, I wish I had someone to live with, cause I'm tired of living Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I simply am reading through the Library of America, that wonderful collection of, of American writers, uh, looking at it briefly at 100 pages at a time, right? Giving my comments, my thoughts, um, my feelings about each, each section um, as, I, as I read along. So currently I'm in the middle of what up to this point is has been the, the longest... One of the, uh, that is the longest series I may ever have in this particular podcast. Um, the, bo- the book I'm looking at now is An American Tragedy by, by Theodore Dreiser. It comes in at, uh, at 900 pages, uh, and it's actually a whole volume is dedicated simply to, to the American tragedy. I don't think I looked at everything that's quite this long before. I think the longest up to this point has been things like The Octopus or maybe Little Women, about 500 pages. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting that this book, despite being so long and really focused on just like the life of one young man and really just one major incident in life and the aftermath of it, uh, the his the murder of his of his girlfriend by himself and you know to what degree was it an accident what degree was it premeditated that's something that comes up in the subsequent trial and that's what dominates the last third of the novel but it's really you know there's not that much that happens but Dreiser is able to keep our interest so well by going into the minds of these different characters and filling up the world around these characters and their histories and their experiences and everything that happened to them that led them to this point that it almost has to be this long for it to work that well. Had it been shorter, it, it perhaps wouldn't have, have come together so well. Um, it's a really wonderful example of the naturalist tradition in that, you know, what are some of the characteristics of naturalism? We've looked at them before when we looked at Frank Norris, but they're, they're like uh, a strict realism. That's part of it. And naturalism is kind of a branch off of realism, but a lot of focus on the impersonal forces that affect individuals, right? The kind of, we might call this fate, Certainly, we see fate at work here, but uh, naturalists are really interested in capitalism, the economy, the the social relations, and how these seem to drive people and move people to to various fates. Right? We see that certainly a lot in in Frank Norris, uh, to a lesser degree in Jack London, um, but um, it's it's a big part of Dreiser's approach as well. So you have that. You have the focus on social problems and often urban life and the changing reality of the city. They really accompany progressive progressive era politics very well. But then one thing that the naturalists did that I think the straight realists did, didn't do, was by trying to get into the mind of characters and trying to report on the internal experiences of characters. So it's a much more internalized kind of realism, which is something the straight-up realists didn't always do. They weren't so reflective on the psychology and the feelings, and, and you didn't get as much narration about what different characters were, were going on in their head, right? So you get a greater degree of subjectivity in naturalism, and I think that's one thing that makes this genre so compelling and interesting to dive into. So um, up to this point, we, we've uh, in this novel, we've looked at the first 400 pages or so of, of an American tragedy. We've met Clyde Griffiths, and we've learned how he fled his 
home to, or his, his where his family lived at the time. He didn't really have a hometown so much because he always moved around, but fled where his, you know, Kansas City, where his family was after being involved in a hit and run. He takes on various odd jobs and he finally lands a job with his much richer uncle, his factory in like her just New York, which is just a, a made up city in upstate New York. Uh, in a, it's a collar factory and that's where he ends up working. He eventually gets promoted to run a, a floor really on the foundation of his name. And while there, he starts to date uh, a young farm girl who he's very attracted to, and she's very attracted to him. There's, it's a very, there's a lot of physical chemistry and sexual chemistry in this relationship, and it very quickly leads to a sexual relation, uh, partially due to Clyde Griffiths pressuring her, but also due to her own physical desires. Um, at the end of where we left off last time, uh, this young woman, Ro- Roberta Alden, has already realized she's pregnant or possibly pregnant. But by this point, Clyde has already been kind of introduced to high society through other family relations. And because the Griffiths family hasn't really welcomed him in to high society, he's very quickly went to these other families that start to invite him and, and kind of bring him to the party. And one woman there, Sandra Fitchley, you know, basically begins you know, a romantic interest in Clyde, and this leads him to neglect and ignore and increasingly marginalize Roberta in his, in his life. This happens right at the time when she starts to realize she's pregnant. So what's going to happen in the next 500 pages of the book, it's really about the, it's really about the, what Clyde tries to do about the fact that this woman who's essentially now an ex-girlfriend um, is pregnant, carrying his child. He has to acknowledge that, he has to also keep this relationship secret because the relationship itself was forbidden. The laws of the factory made it, you know, impossible for him to date uh, or be romantically involved with one of his, the, the women he supervised. He wants to not have this exposed because he wants to move up in society and be, in, you know, enter into with the Fitchleys and start dating Sandra Fitchley. So he's got all these pressures. So he's trying to deal with the pregnancy, deal with this ex-girlfriend, um, and and this ex-girlfriend, of course, wants him to marry her to make her make her child legitimate in any case. Like and sometimes she talks about giving the child a name, right? You know. And then, you know, keeping this quiet. These are his major concerns. So the what goes on in this section is a lot of talk about abortion, a lot of talk about solving her her troubles. There's a lot of euphemisms here. Um I don't even think these words like pregnancy or abortion are used that often. They do show up from time to time, but Dreiser is much more likely to use these euphemistic phrases like uh, Roberta's problems or troubles, you know, as a reference to her pregnancy or to talk about, you know, making her troubles go away or, or solving her trouble, you know, instead of just straight up saying abortion. So it's, it's, it's rather, it's kind of a forbidden language. Um, to, to talk directly about these things. And this is going to be true throughout the rest of the novel, even up to the trial, where you think you'd get more technical phrasing of these things. But no, it's still very much talked about euphemistically, which I think just is a good, nice reminder of how, how rare it was for there to be single mothers and how difficult it was for, for single, you know, unwed mothers to, 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 to make it, right? And there were still a lot of shotgun weddings in those days. I, I mean, I don't think premarital sex was as rare as some conservatives may, may think. Um, and in fact, one thing that comes up early on in this section, something I talked about a little bit in the last episode as well, 
is that, you know, there's kind of a bit of a veil of ignorance we can give ourselves if if there's like seven, eight months between the, the marriage and the first child being born. And then there's kind of plausible but deniability. And maybe everyone, if they really think to sit down with a calendar, will figure it out that this was a shotgun wedding. But, you know, it's it's people can pretend not to know. It can be something that's a bit hidden and, and veiled. And it, you know, it's still kind of within the realm of propriety if it's that, if it's that close. Right. And sometimes, you know, children can be born a little bit early and you, so so you can kind of say this, it's a legitimate thing, right? It's different if you're five, six, seven months pregnant, you're showing, you get married then and you have a child very soon after, then no one can really pretend they, they don't know that this was the result of premarital sex. So it's something that that's really on Roberta's mind a lot in this early part of this section where she's trying to get Clyde to either help her with, get the abortion, which she's willing to do, you know, or marry her. I mean, these are really the two options Roberta sees. Clyde, though, seems to hold out hope for for other options and when these options don't come he gets more increasingly more and more desperate and this leads us to the the central tragedy of of book two of the american tragedy which involves the death of of roberta alden largely due to the actions of of clyde griffiths whether it's a straight-up murder is something that the trial has to parse out and something readers individually will have to to think about i i think Dreiser, as I talked about in the last one, when I compared this case to the actual historical case, it seems the historical case is more black and white, a case of straight up premeditated murder. Dreiser muddies the water a little bit in various ways by showing us um, Clyde's ambivalence, his hesitation, and the final acts being more his inaction than being any overt act to, to murder her. Still, he brought her onto this lake, right? So had he not done that, she wouldn't have died. So it's still, he still has this moral burden, but, you know, he fuzzy, he muddies the water a little bit in interesting ways. Um, but in any case, that's going to be something, we, we, the murder will take place in a section we'll cover in the next next episode. Um, if, you're, if you're reading along, this, this particular episode will cover chapters 32 to 43 of part two. Um, it almost takes us to the end of part two. Um, but there's still a few more chapters before we get to part three. Part three covers mostly the trial and eventually the execution of, of Clyde Griffiths. So um, this section is dealing more with the efforts to get an abortion and then the growing conflict between Clyde, his frustration over his inability to, to get rid of this um, monkey on his back. Increasingly what he sees is just a problem he has to deal with which is Roberta's pregnancy and her insistence that they marry and the threats she increasingly places on him to to maybe expose him. And then at the same time, his desire to kind of put this old relationship behind him and to fully embrace a relationship with, with um, Fitchley or other high society ladies. So that's, that's what's going on mostly in, in this section of the story. So I want to focus, though, on his efforts to get an abortion. I want us to think about abortion law in the early 20th century to see where it was at and to see how how attitudes about reproductive rights, you know, would have affected, you know, if, how, how just access to abortion I think has affected women in, in this period, the early 20th century. So um, I don't have any books on this, so I just jumped to Wikipedia to see 
what they said, and there's a lot of interesting stuff here. It's the, it's the article called Abortion in the United States, and it covers mostly recent issues in Roe versus Wade and the aftermath of that. But it's got an interesting section on, on the history. And we see here in, um, this is abortion laws in the U.S. before Roe. There's a map here, and we get 30 states where it's illegal, illegal. One where it's legal in the case of rape. One, uh, two states where it was legal in the case of danger to women's health. Thirteen states where it's legal in, if, in case of uh, women's health, rape, or incest. So that's, I guess, both, right? Four legal on request. And one of those is New York. Now, I don't know. That's before Roe. So I don't know what it was exactly in, in the 1920s when Dreiser wrote. Um, it's presented in the text as illegal at the time. So I think in most states at the early 20th century, abortion was was illegal. And doctors who who performed abortions could be put in jail for what's cited in the text here is 10 years, right? And then doctors had a lot of power to just enforce their moral uh, beliefs on patients. So doctors, you know, could limit women's reproductive access um, just by refusing to treat them. And that could have extended, it seems, even to things like birth control. Uh, I know that was a common thing before the, the sexual revolution for, and before the pill, right? If a young woman, an unmarried woman wanted like an IUD or something, some doctors would refuse to do that because they would think this is going to facilitate premarital sex, something I can't condone morally as a doctor. Um, the pill sort of started to change the culture of that. But nevertheless, it was a you know, part that something that women had to go through to get access to to birth control or abortions was the doctor, right? The doctor was this gatekeeper, and you know it. You know what we the story we sort of get in the text here is that options were available, but they were hard to get, right? You kind of had to be shady. You had to know shady people. You had to get a recommendation, and Clyde is talking to people who's to, who are talking to people who know a doctor might do it, and sometimes these are false leads, and they go to a druggist who has certain medicine that might work to cause an abortion, and it doesn't. So there's a lot of, of various frustrations. But anyways, let's let's look at the, the history here of abortion rights in the United States. Um, this is what the Wikipedia article says. When the United States first became independent, most states applied English common law to abortion. That meant it was not permitted after quickening or the start of fetal movements usually felt 15 to 20 weeks after conception. Um, so that, I think, was the, the case. That, that that's goes, may go back to like medieval Christian law, right? Like, like when the soul enters the, the fetus, is that quickening? Okay, um, continuing on the article. Abortions became illegal by statute in Britain in 1803, and various anti-abortion statutes began to appear in the United States in the 19, 1820s that codified or expanded common law. In 1921, a Connecticut law targeted apothecaries who sold poisons to women for purposes of inducing an abortion. And New York made post-quickening abortions a felony and pre-quickening abortions a misdemeanor in 1829. Some argue that the early American abortion laws were motivated not by ethnic concerns about abortion, but by concerns about the procedure safety. However, some legal theorists point out that this theory is inconsistent with the fact that abortion was punishable regardless of whether any harm befell the pregnant woman. And the fact that many of the early laws punished not only the doctor or abortionist, but also the women who hired them. Another other many of number of other factors played a role in the rise of anti-abortion laws in the U.S. Physicians who were the leading advocates of abortion criminalization laws appear to have been motivated at least in part by advances in medical knowledge. Science has discovered that conception in 
inaugurated a more or less continuous process of development, which would produce a new human being if uninterrupted. Moreover, quickening was found to be neither more or less crucial in the process of gestation than in other steps. Many physicians concluded that if society considered unjustifiable but terminated pregnancy after the fetus had quickened, and if quickening was a relatively unimportant step, then it was just as wrong to terminate a pregnancy before quickening as after quickening. Um, so it goes on here talking about you know, this, this idea that, that starts to step, step in and there's not a clear moment in which you can say this is where, when a life is viable or, you know, and this is the same stuff you'll hear from anti-abortion people today, I suppose. I mean, they go back to conception, uh, some of them. What else do we have here? Uh, continuing on, despite campaigns to end the practice of abortion, Borshafacient advertising was highly effective in the United States, though less so across the Atlantic. Contemporary estimates of mid-19th century abortion rates in the United States suggest between 20 to 25 percent of all pregnancies in the United States ended that era in that era ended in abortion. This era saw a marked shift in those who were attaining abortions. Before the start of the 19th century, most were sought by unmarried women who had become pregnant out of wedlock. Out of 45 abortion cases published in American American medical journals between 30, 1839 and 1880, over half were sought by married women. Well over 60% by married women already had at least one child. The sense that married women were all frequently obtaining abortions worried many conservative physicians who were almost exclusively men. In the post-Civil War era, much of the blame was placed on burgeoning women's rights movement. Though the medical profession expressed hostility towards feminism, many feminists of the era were opposed to abortion. The, in the revolution operated by Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, an anonymous contributor signing A wrote in 1869 about the subject, arguing that instead of merely attempting to pass a law against abortion, the root cause must be addressed. Simply passing an anti-abortion law would, the writer stated, be only moving off the top of the noxious weed while the root remains. No matter what the moment, love of ease or desire to save from suffering of unborn innocent, the, women is, the woman is awfully guilty who commits the deed. It will burden her conscience in life. It will burden her soul in death. But oh, thrice guilty is he who drove her to the desperation, who impelled her to the crime. To many feminists of the era, abortion was regarded as an undesirable necessity forced upon women by thoughtless men. Even the free love wing of the feminist movement refused to advocate for abortion and treated the practice as an example of the hideous extremes to which modern marriage was driving women. Marital rape and the seduction of unmarried women were societal ills which feminists believed caused the need to abort, as men did not respect women's right to abstinence. End quote. Well, now, that's certainly relevant to what's going on in this story, right? Because we have Clyde essentially not respecting Roberta's right to abstinence. Now, now to what degree Roberta wanted to have sex, it's pretty clear she desired it and she was... Um, I mean, she was physically drawn to it. She, and there's a lot of sexual chemistry between these two characters. However, she did, would, she did try to assert her moral feelings that they shouldn't have sex and, you know, whatever. But she's, she's, she's pushed by Clyde, who eventually threatens to just break off their, their relationship. But I think it's interesting here that the tension here between feminists and how some feminists uh, saw the need for abortion not as abortion not as a right that needs to be achieved, but rather a symptom of deeper social inequalities about, you know, sexuality, right? That that men, whether in marriage or outside of marriage, were forcing women to have sex against their will and then therefore forcing children upon them. And then those men who don't want to, those, those, those uh, pregnancies to be continued would then force the abortion on, on these women. 
Okay, continuing on, the, on this Wikipedia article, we get a little bit closer to the period um, of the story. Criminalization of abortion accelerated from the late 1860s through the efforts of concentrated legislators, doctors, and the AMA, American Medical Association. In 1873, and Anthony Comstock created the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, an institution dedicated to supervising the morality of the public. Later that year, Comstock successfully influenced the United States Congress to pass the Comstock Law. Um, now, I'll just skip over here because the Comstock Law was to prevent the mailing of you know, illicit pornographic material in the mail, right? But that included uh, stuff that would either talk about abortion or talk about treating venereal disease. That all stuff got deemed pornography, essentially, and was also suppressed. So women had less access to, to abortion. In 1900, this is back to the article, in 1900, abortion was a felony in every state. Some states included provisions allowing for the abortion in limited circumstances, generally to protect the woman's life or terminate pregnancies arising from rape or incest. Abortions continued to occur, however, and became increasingly available. The American Birth Control League was founded by Margaret Sanger in 1921 to promote the founding of birth control clinics and enable women to control their own fertility. In 1930, licensed physicians performed an estimated 800,000 abortions a year. So that's that's the legal situation. So it's 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 illegal, but doctors are performing abortions. But that basically means women who want to have an abortion have to go through a doctor and find a doctor willing to do it. Now, you know what's missing from this article, which of course would be another thing we'd have to look at, would be to what degree were doctors actually being prosecuted for this? If if it's a felony, but very few doctors are prosecuted, then there's not much risk especially if there's 800,000 a year around this time. But if if doctors are at risk of being prosecuted for having abortions, you can understand the doctor here's opinion a little bit differently. But if it's really just it's just a felony on paper, right? And it's it's not it's it's something that people that police aren't really investigating and 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 suppressing. Then it's really about the morality, the moral views of the doctor that the woman has to get through, right? And she has to convince the doctor that that uh, an abortion is justifiable, which is kind of an odious thing. And in that in that sense, you know, one of the dangers of perhaps some anti-abortion positions is is that it, you know, that this idea that you have to go through another step to get an abortion, right? You need to find a doctor who's willing to do it. And if that's not easy to find, it just becomes much more stressful and, and difficult for women to control their reproductive lives. Um, anyways, this that that's the situation as, as I understand it, just by kind of glancing at Wikipedia. But a lot of it is is what Roberta faces in in this part of the story. So without going chapter by chapter through this, what we see happen is, is Clyde is basically making himself more and more aloof from Ro Roberta. Roberta does try to reach out to him after like a Christmas vacation. And she, she was already home knowing she's worried that she's, she's pregnant. And she, you know, she doesn't tell her parents or anything because it's still early on. And she tries to approach Clyde and, and Clyde's, she picks up that Clyde is kind of hanging out with other girls and, and dating others. And she starts to feel that, you know, maybe she's losing him. And that's more or less confirmed in the next chapter when we see Clyde expressing his feelings for, for Sandra Finchley in quite dramatic terms. 
quote, Oh, Sandra, when I love you so much and I'm so crazy about you, don't you care at all that I care for you? Is something that Clyde says to Sandra um, in the very next chapter. And then this was followed up by Roberta's confession to Clyde that she's pregnant. She, she writes a letter basically saying, like, I need to talk to you. It's, it's very serious. Um, we got to meet tonight. It can meet, you know, anywhere, but it's got to be right away tonight. And then they meet and then she she tells him essentially that she's got this problem. She's, she's got, she's pregnant. She's missed, she missed a period and she, she's fear she's, she's pregnant. And so she's got to handle, this is something that has to be dealt with. Now it's still pretty early. It, it's, you know, I, I, it's not, qu- I'm not quite following exactly the timeline here, but it's, it's only been a few days that her period's been late. And so Clyde's a bit like, well, maybe you're overreacting. Maybe it will, Maybe you'll have it tomorrow, so let's just chill for now, right? We can't do anything in this moment anyways. But the, the effect on this on Roberta is very sudden and harsh, though. She just feels she's being neglected and ignored, and, and this is quite traumatic for for poor um, Roberta. So um, as things continue, Clyde asks around, you know, and he finds out some druggists who might have some of these these potions, right, these poisons that will induce an abortion right in its early stages and they try a couple of them and they don't work and he has to go to other towns like disconnected in other places in upstate new york to get these druggists who will sell him this stuff Um, but none of it really really works now clyde is of course frustrated by this because he he just thinks this is the last thing he needs to take care of before he can kind of break off his relationship with roberta entirely roberta at the same time is feeling more and more anguish both in that she's losing Clyde and she's feeling greater and greater, you know, indifference from Clyde towards her. She's, she feels very alone. And there's actually a scene that, that, this, that follows us up. And when they, when the potions don't work, when the remedies they, they make don't, don't end the abortion, don't induce a, don't, don't end the pregnancy and don't induce an abortion. She goes to a doctor and Clyde refuses to go with her, right? Of course, he's trying to cover up. He doesn't want their relationship exposed. So he basically finds the doctor and says, this doctor will do an abortion. You've got to talk to him. And he refuses to go with her. So forces her to go alone to talk to this doctor. And this is a very great scene in the book. I believe it's chapter... It's chapter 27 of book two, and it's a pretty lengthy chapter, but it just shows how much Clyde doesn't want to really help her. It's not that serious about helping her. I mean, he's willing to put together the money or whatever, but he doesn't want to actually be an emotional support to Roberta as she's trying to figure this out. And he's certainly not promising marriage to her. But this conversation with the doctor is is pretty brutal to read, and it, it, go, it makes me really think of something I was talking about before, and that is... The, the fact that in an era where abortion's illegal, but doc, p- police aren't really prosecuting doctors for it, doctors then be, can, be, can be very arbitrary and women have to go through this. It, I'm just imagining every woman who wanted to have an abortion, those 800,000 who were having one every year in 1930, would have to all go to a doctor. Now, by the way, 1930 might be a high year. Uh, we do know birth rates declined significantly in, in the 1930s during the Great Depression as people... Uh, had more abortions because they're, they're, you know, they couldn't afford to have kids at that point. So birth rates did, did decline. 
but thinking back actually in the the progressive era there's a lot of fear of like immigrants coming in right and having a lot of kids this was a big part of kind of the progressive the racism of the progressive era was this kind of this growth of anti-immigrant thought that's when we start to see anti-immigration laws being passed we have of course the chinese exclusion act and then others followed that up and a lot of this was based on this idea of kind of the death of the white race right that these immigrants are going to come in they're having more kids and eventually white people are going to be a minority right that that's still a kind of part of the panic of of some racist in this country but it was a big part of of the progressive era and a lot of the eugenics policies were based on this idea of promoting births among white people right and if 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 there's some truth to this it was that white families especially upper class white families were having fewer and fewer kids or controlling their you know their pregnancies a little bit more and this caused some panic among eugenicists um, anyways but for whatever reason you know doctors became these gatekeepers and it's something it's a it's a burden women had to go through and I, I just trying to empathize for for all these thousands of women who who had to go through all these steps and when you think about abortion laws that are being proposed I mean I don't know if we'll go back to, you know, most states outright banning abortion in all forms, but, you know, because I, I guess with the Supreme Court change, we might see the end of Roe versus Wade. I wouldn't be surprised if that comes about. I don't think we'd see 30 states or more make abortion 100% illegal. But what we're going to see is a lot of, you know, laws passed that are going to make it more difficult and frustrating for women to get abortions. They're going to need permission. They're going to need uh, maybe to go through waiting periods or things like that. And and we got in this chapter, twenty chapter 37, a really good example of just how odious that can be. And essentially what we have in this chapter is a doctor grilling this young woman over her pregnancy for an extended period of time and lecturing to her and judging her and giving advice that he has no business giving her, like advice about who she should marry and advice about her family life. And it's all pretty horrific to actually read. Um, so I urge you, if, if you're interested in this topic, to go and read this chapter and just to try to, to try to imagine what it'd be like. And then to, to make it even worse, Roberta's completely alone. She doesn't have her um, a man in her life anymore. She essentially has she has Clyde, but Clyde doesn't want anything to do with her. So she's all alone in this room with this doctor for you know for a very long time. And it starts out as a fairly he's nice enough but he's judging he's lecturing he's giving us opinions he's giving us kind of moral judgment of her and it's pretty horrible to actually read and to imagine that this kind of stuff could come back in even a modified form is something i really hope we can avoid all right but just to summarize what happens at this meeting is, is first she walks in she's she's alone and she's she claims to be married to this man and claims they're newlywed. They've only been married a short period of time and they don't think they can afford to have um, a child. And this doesn't really pass the smell test from the doctor's point of view because, you know, she has like, he has like, what's his craft? And he's like an electrician or something. And she's, you know, he's like, well, that's a good craft. That shouldn't, you know, she'd be able to afford to have a kid in that case. And yeah, a lot of young families suffer in the first few years, but it's worth it to have a kid. And here's where he starts to lecture her on like the virtues of family and and all that and that's what's pretty gross to to read and then she continues pushing no i really need this i need your help and then he says well i'm morally opposed to that and it's illegal so i can't do it and finally she breaks down and says i've been lying i i'm not married you know i can't have this kid the guy doesn't want to marry me and 
he basically says, well, then you should marry, you got to marry him, right? And he should marry you. And that's like my final advice. And he, he continues to lecture her on the morality of abortion and on the virtues of family. And yeah, it's just, it, you know, to give doctors this, this much power, I mean, the law by, by making it illegal essentially gave doctors the right to turn away these women. Now, I'm not quite sure why Clyde wasn't able to find anyone to to do this abortion. Of course, in the real case that this is based on, the, the girl didn't have an abortion either. Um, I don't know if they, they sought it out. I didn't read that closely into the case. But Dreiser did study that case in some detail, so it might have happened. But, you know, it was pretty hard. And we, we see Clyde trying to contact other doctors, but then there's some doubt cast on how, how serious he was he was um, pursuing that. Um, so eventually they, they get turned away for this doctor without any help. And and now she doesn't know what to do. We get a nice little window into her, her, her traumatic thoughts at this time. Quote, he paused and gazed at her. This is the doctor. He paused and gazed at her sympathetically, yet with a determined and concluded look in his eye. And Roberta, dumbfounded by the sudden termination of all her hopes in connection with him, and realizing at last that not only had she been misled by Clyde's information in regard to this doctor, but that her technical as well as emotional plea had failed. Now, walked unsteadily to the door, the terror of the future crowding thick upon her. And once outside the dark, in the dark, after the doctor had most courteously and ruefully closed the door behind her, and paused to lean against, she paused to lean against a tree that was there. Her nervous and physical strength all but failing her. He had refused to help her. He had refused to help her. And now what? End quote. Um, notice Clyde's not there to even support her. He's, he gave her the name of the doctor and then just kind of didn't want anything else to do with it. And she, he, he Dreiser repeats here twice. And he had refused to help her. He had refused to help her. You know, you can, this can be the doctor twice. Or it can be Clyde and the doctor. I mean, certainly if Roberta is feeling betrayed and abandoned by both parties here. So now we have a little bit of a game of, we got kind of a Mexican standoff established for much of the rest of book two. Um, I guess there's another hundred pages or so until we get to the end of book two. So I'll finish it up in the next episode. But for all this period, we have a Russian, a, a Mexican standoff. What Roberta's gun... <laughs> pointing at Clyde is that she can at any moment expose Clyde. She can come to Lycurgus, you know, let people know, let the people at the factory know, her supervisors, that she got knocked up by, by Clyde, expose him, ruin his chance with these other women, ruin his chance in high society, probably force him to marry her or something, and then ruin his chance with, the, with that Griffith family and Lycurgus. So that's a pretty powerful weapon she has uh, she hesitates to use it though um, but because it's also means exposing herself right she doesn't she doesn't want to be she, she she doesn't want to tell her parents so she's hesitating to do that she doesn't to the last moment pursue that path now for her of course the danger Clyde has is if he abandons her completely you know you can't force someone to marry it's pretty hard to force someone to marry you what what that then what Clyde can offer her is illegitimacy for a child, destitution and and disgrace. Now what Roberta approaches him sometime after this, sits him down and simply tells him like 
the only solution to this is that we marry. And if if we don't marry forever, that's not the end of the world. She says, you know, I my child needs a name. So it has to be legitimate. We have to do it soon because after two months, everyone's going to know it was, you know, premarital sex caused the abortion and that it was shotgun wedding. And that's bad. That's a disgrace for her. So we have to do it soon. But maybe in a few years, you know, we can move our separate ways, right? But for now, you got to marry me. And that's not an unreasonable thing. But Griffith, Clyde Griffith is so narrow-minded and he, he thinks so short-term about things. He, you know, he he always thinks about his how he how he appears to his social betters. He's, he's always doing that. There's a, there's a line earlier in the novel when he first gets the job and he starts to inherit this kind of gospel of wealth philosophy of social mobility and the necessity of capital and the virtues of wealth and all this. And he seems to get this because he's suddenly enamored with the Griffith family, right? He's from a poor family himself and certainly a family that hasn't benefited from, from capitalism in any clear ways, but he embraces the work ethic and all that. But he's doing that largely just because he's reflecting the values of the class he wants to be a part of, right? So he's that's always the ultimate concern for Clyde. That's what's driving almost all his actions. He, he can't really think long-term about that. He can't even see that Roberta's nice. They, they do have that sexual chemistry and he that he doesn't seem to have with these other, this other woman. And... You know, but Roberta's the wrong class, right? And that's that's really a big part of the tragedy that unfolds in the second half of this novel. So what happens in the rest of this part of the of the book? Well, um, Clyde, over time, eventually gives up really trying to help Roberta too much. Trying to he stops trying to get her an abortion, and as the time goes on, it becomes more and more difficult to even manage that in any significant way. So, you know, at some point, it just gets too late, right? It's easier to do early on. So, and he just starts trying to ignore it, almost thinking like if, she, you know, if she goes away, I won't have to deal with her, right? So he just ignores her. He continues with his um, his social life and everything like that. And he just creates, creates, creates more and more bridges between them. Now, she's constantly writing him these letters. He's writes back to her. He writes back to her always very formally you know, without giving too much information, but she would write these very detailed letters about her anguish, about how she needs him, and, and especially about arranging a visit in which they'll finally, hopefully marry, right? That's still what she wants. And her letters get increasingly more and more threatening as time goes on. And eventually, like some of the last letters she writes are straight up threats saying like, if I don't hear from you in a day with a letter or a telegram or something, I am going to like Kurtis and I am going to reveal myself and I'm going to tell my whole story. So they get more and more threatening. So she is getting ready to to pull the trigger on on her gun, right? Clyde really naively thinks like if he just ignores it, it'll go away eventually, or like I don't know if he's like sitting around hoping for a, a miscarriage or something. It's, he's kind of naive. Increasingly, you know, he, he appears as very naive in the fact that he thinks that if he just ignores this, it'll go away. But it's also in this part of the story that he starts to imagine, he starts to think what his another solution he might have is, and that's that's killing Roberta. And and it's it's pretty clear Dreiser doesn't hide this that he um, he he thinks of killing her quite a lot at this as the pregnancy moves on, and as we get into the summer, the late spring and the summer of this year. Again, I'm not sure which year this is set in. Let's just assume it's like 24 or 25. As you get closer to it she's 
he's thinking very clearly about how to kill her and the best way to do it. And what he, what helps him figure out a plan. He's not very original. He's not a very original guy. Uh, he couldn't really plot an original murder if he tried, I, I imagine. But what he, he reads a newspaper article about a couple on a lake that the boat capsized and they both drowned, right? And I think is this? I think maybe the story had like the girl's body was found, but the man's body wasn't. Yeah, that this this was the the news report they got us in the Time Unions of Albany, and it describes this 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 case and. And it seems they both drowned, but they only found the one body. But Clyde Griffiths, of course, given his, you know, what's on his mind, he thinks, well, maybe he murdered her and, and got away. And maybe this is something he could rec- replicate and pull off. Right. So that's really his the only plan he can come up with of how, how to kill her is to take her out in the water somewhere, you know, convince her to come under some pretense. Maybe eventually it's going to be promising essentially to marry her under this pretense, taking her out into the, onto the boat and then drowning her and then like hiding or leaving. Or of course, if I come under a fake name, no one will know it was me really. So, so he's got a very poor plan, but that's his plan of, of how to do that. And then he, he thinks once she's gone and he'll go on with his life and no one will really miss Roberta, police won't look for me or they'll look for some other guy, right? That... It turns out he's going to use his same initials because, like, he's got a monogram on a suitcase or something, so he needs CR, or sorry, CG. So he uses the same initials, and the police see through that really quickly. So his plan isn't very good, but and he gets this plan really from a newspaper report that that shows a possible crime, but not. Um, but anyways, this this is this is where this part of the story leaves off with him thinking about killing Roberta to get rid of her and the but the heart of I think this section is this pursuit of an abortion and I think the central chapter for me in this this section of the novel is this interview between a doctor and Roberta very very interesting very powerful and it just shows you how how giving the doctor that kind of moral authority over patients can be incredibly problematic I think it'd be a really interesting section to look at just from a medical ethics point of view you know even though abortion is illegal the way the doctor was essentially allowed to lecture her and berate her almost and, and give her advice about who she should marry and things. It's, it's not in the doctor's preview, right? Maybe a therapist, right? You, you could imagine a therapist because you're going to the therapist for that specific advice. She went to this doctor for an abortion. And instead of just saying, no, I can't do that for legal reasons, he, he proceeds to give her all this advice about her love life and who she should marry. And it, it all comes off as kind of gross, especially from our contemporary point of view perspective so anyways um a lot of interesting stuff going there we're, we're pretty much to the climax of book two of this novel um obviously it's the, the central event is going to be the death of, of roberto alden on this lake where all because kyle griff is trying to replicate this this news report he's read in in the albany newspaper but i'll talk about that and i'll talk about how book three opens uh the manhunt and how that all begins in my in my next episode so um, for now, thanks so much for listening. Uh, please leave your own comments about the history of abortion in the United States or how it interacts with this novel. What are your own thoughts about Amer- the American tragedy, particularly this passage um, where this, these two young people are trying to deal with this issue? Um, how both apply their, the power they have over their, their rival almost at this point? Uh, was there a solution? 
Was there any way? Was this all Clyde's fault? You know, what are your thoughts about how was there a way out? I guess that's the bigger question. Was there any escape? In a in a good tragedy, there's really no way out, right? Um, you know, and it is called an American tragedy. So in the classical kind of tragedy form, there shouldn't be a clear way out for any of our, our characters. But, you know, is there better ways this could have turned out? So um, please leave your thoughts about any of these issues. Particularly, I'm interested in what you might think about the abortion laws of the time and how they've been portrayed in literature. Are there any other stories that you know of that, that deal with abortion law in this, this time? This is the first time I've ever come across it, I think. But um, that's what's on my mind now, having read this, this part of, of an American tragedy. In the next episode, I'll look at the rest of book two and the first, I think, four or five or six chapters of, of book three. It mostly deals with the, the discovery of Roberta's body and the, and the manhunt. As always, thanks for listening. Uh, send me your comments uh, just below. You can post them or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time with part six of my thoughts on An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser. Oh